about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of a man, of a man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He fell on ashes. A deluded heat misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you, you are my servant. O Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers. Who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, of the towns of Judah, they shall be built, and of their ruins, I will restore them. 
Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams? Who says of Cyprus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please? He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasure of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness grow with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Uh, Let's continue reading God's word from uh, Romans 1, uh, verse 18 to 23. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they had claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Hi friends, good to be with you. I'm going to move the enormous number of music stands a little bit around, because how good was it to have seven people in a band? That's like the first time in forever we've had that. So good to sing together. If you're new in church today, welcome to you. It's so good to have you here. If you're new online as well, welcome. Love that you're here today. We're uh, walking through the book of Isaiah together as we start our year as God's people. And Isaiah 40 and following is a word of comfort to God's people in the midst of their exile in the land of Babylon, where they've been conquered and taken to. And what we've been looking at in this part of the Bible is this comforting word from God, where he speaks of his sovereign love for his people. That's not dependent upon how great they are, but upon him and his love for them. But there's a reality for the Israelites in exile as well. There are alternatives to trust in their travails and in their turmoil and in all of their difficulties. 
there are idols that surround them in a foreign city. Really, they are living among foreign gods that are oppressive. Uh, in particular, the god Marduk, you can see here, who was the chief deity of the capital city of Babylon and the kind of Zeus of all of the Mesopotamian gods of that part of the ancient world. And when a people was taken captive and led into Babylon, they would walk on a, a road through the Ishtar Gate that looked a little bit like that. And every stone marking this road through the gate into Babylon read, in honor of Marduk, in honor of Marduk, in honor of Marduk, in honor of Marduk. Just imagine it. Imagine being in your city, seeing your temple destroyed, seeing your God nowhere, and then being forced out and along this road into a foreign city. There are all sorts of questions it raises about whether Marduk is really in control of things, about whether their God is really there for them at all in the midst of things. And so Isaiah, as he proclaims God's sovereign love to his people, also unmasks the alternative of this idol, Marduk, and other idols as well. Now, you might be thinking this evening, well, I don't really have any Marduks. I don't have any small little uh, paintings of gods in my bedroom necessarily. And that might be true. But like the exiles in Babylon, we too are submerged in a culture with different spiritualities and idols and gods. Apple's working really hard to sell me an Apple Watch at the moment, which is really interesting because I have no interest in getting an Apple Watch. But what's really interesting to me as I flick through Twitter, and this one keeps coming up, it's the messaging behind the product, right? Stay active, healthy, connected, starting at $300. You know, if you had me, you would have a little bit more comfort, a little bit more control, maybe a little bit more security in life. It's not just a product, it's, it's selling me something. It's selling me an alternative to the God I know and love in a subtle way, in an uh, indirect way. Life is easier on an iPhone, I'm told. That's for the Android users tonight in particular. But our culture all day long is selling us these little ideas in little bite-sized pieces. If you had me, you'd have more comfort. Oh, if you did this, you'd have more comfort. Oh, if you just followed this way and this idea... There's more security in managing your money this way and more security if you have this sort of home and more control in this kind of way of living. And little bit by little bit, we are given alternatives. David Foster Wallace says, it's the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. We all have our Marduks. We all have the alternatives that drip by drip are being fed to us, that we start to be allured by. And so this word in Isaiah 44 is as much a word for us in our culture as it was to Israel in Babylon. And there's three things I want you to know this evening. One is about idols, and two is about the greatness of your God, and just as a way of making sense of that. But the first thing we see here, and it's about idols, is that really what you need when you're submerged in another culture's gods is you really need to see the absolute absurdity of producing your own god. 
And that's what Isaiah does in this part of the text uh, in a really kind of comedic, poetic way, an artistic way. It's quite hilarious, actually. It's some of his best comedy in the whole book. If I was to compare this to anything in our culture right now, I'd say it's kind of like those Instagram feeds, uh, boyfriends of Instagram or girlfriends of Instagram, where you, they're, they're photographing the boyfriend who's taking a photo of the girlfriend or something like that, and it just looks ridiculous. This beautiful photo behind the scenes is utterly insane. This is Isaiah's version of that. Have a look. He starts polemically. All who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. Those who speak up for them are blind and they're ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit nothing? See the repetition? Those who make idols, those who craft them, they are nothing. And the idols they produce make and produce nothing. And those who treasure them will end up with terror and shame. Shame is repeated three times in an opening. It's a strong word back to Israel about the futility of trusting any other God, straight up front, of just how it will go nowhere, there is nothing to it, and it will end in shame and terror. And this is where Isaiah gets a little bit fun with it, because to make his point, he takes us into the workshop of the gods. He takes us first to a blacksmith. And we see him with hammers in hand in front of a fire, crafting and forging a god. Because every Marduk is made somewhere by someone with something. And this uh, blacksmith, as he builds, he gets hungry and thirsty and almost faints because really he's not very strong. He's a pathetic human. And really, if a pathetic human is making an idol... How can the idol have any more strength than him? No idol can have more strength than the one who makes it. Well, how about the carpenter who's making a god not out of metal, but out of wood? Well, he gets out his markers, his sharpie, and he kind of gets an outline going and rusts it in with a chisel and finds a nice human shape for it, an Adonis. And then he goes, oh, I need something to make this from. And he goes out into where? To the mystical fairyland and gets a piece of magic back with him. No, he just walks into the forest. And finds a tree he planted a few years earlier and says, oh, this is a good one. The rain made it grow. I'll bring it back. And I need need some to cook my dinner and I need some for a god. So I guess I will use half and half. Half god, half dinner. And we'll just divide it up. You know, how can a god be strong that's made from wood? An idol can't be stronger than what it's made from. But the real point that Isaiah wants to drive at is the absolute spiritual darkness and blindness that comes with crafting an idol. Half of the wood he burns in the fire, verse 16. Over it he prepares his meal and says, Ah, I'm warm, I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. Their minds are closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think, I used half for fuel and half for a god. Should I make something detestable with this? Their feed on ashes, a deluded heart misleads him. See, at the heart of it, Isaiah says, you know, someone who makes a god from wood and can't tell the difference between the two parts of it that they use, is that not an inordinate level of spiritual blindness and utter darkness? 
And how can something forged with such self-delusion and lies and blindness profit anyone with anything? How can an idol give spiritual light when it's born in spiritual blindness? How can an idol be stronger than the one who made it, stronger than the stuff it's made of, more insightful than the delusion that made it? They are all nothing. It's beautiful, this unpacking, this unmasking of just the, the sheer ridiculousness of the whole thing of making your own God. Let's think about it in our times and and with us. Here's my favorite uh, piece of advertising in the last 10 years that I've seen. Uh, It's called the Happiness Project that was uh, commissioned by Reese Bathrooms in around 2017, 2018. It's not on their website anymore, which means they might be embarrassed about it. Sorry for them. But when we walked into Reese Bathrooms to buy some, some things and to work out what to do with our bathrooms, this lovely lady greeted us with all the water levitating around her, conveniently, who seems really made up for someone who's having a bath. Uh, and it's really interesting. You walk in, and this whole promotion was based around uh, the spiritual vision of what your bathroom could be. I love it. Water, it's, they say, transforms us. Connecting us back to nature, it brings about change. It reaches beyond the physical. It enhances our emotional well-being. It has the power to calm, to restore, to rejuvenate us. Switch into Zen mode. Enter a world of escape. Bliss out in the bath. Soft swells of water will send you on your way. A cleansing ritual that clears the mind. You know, if we get the Italian tile with the black taps... And the wooden bench top, I think we'll get Nirvana. You know, it's just, it is just insane. It is just, you know, brass taps and pieces of wood as you wash your face in the morning will not give you spiritual peace. It is overpromised and always underdelivered. You know, when we look at something like this, it's so easy to unmask it. This ridiculous bathroom or uh, selling you an, uh, an iPhone to help your life become less complicated. But let's be honest, the, the things we tend to gravitate towards and be allured by are often more subtle and more complicated than this. And it takes a bit more work to kind of get behind them and unmask, unmask them for what they are. But we find ourselves doing these things all the time. A lot of us spend time and stock producing a reputation and achievements to match and an image to save ourselves from that feeling of smallness and mediocrity that greets us in the middle of the night. We spend a lot of time optimizing our money choices, ensuring we can be protected from potential future disasters as a way of future salvation. During uh, the the bowels of the pandemic last year, where was our confidence as a nation in our unassailable economic machine produced to the glory of our country? We find ourselves placing all of our confidence and meaning in sets of ideas that are given to us by our culture about how we might better ourselves and save the world with us. Friends, all of these were cooked up in marketing meetings. They're the wisdom of men and women. None of them are designed to bring about your salvation. None of them are really strong enough 
to handle the meaning and the craft and the essence of your soul. What is it that you find yourself allured by? Sometimes it's something more ethereal, just like being comfortable and happy or feeling secure about life or feeling like you're in control. Often all of our little consumeristic trinkets are all just for one of those bigger things. What is it for you, friend? Unmask it and its absurdity tonight. Let the Holy Spirit do that for you as you read this text. But there's more here for us than that. There's a word about our God. Because right after this unpacking, we hear our God speak. Remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you. You are my servant, Israel, and I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Friends, remember, your God made you. And he's already redeemed you. So it's not enough to just unmask our idolatries. We have to return to the one who has redeemed us. See the beautiful sets of contrast as we, as we walk through this, these just beautiful little verses? You know, earlier, idols are formed by people, right? But what is God emphatically saying? I formed you, Israel. I made you. Same word as the blacksmith forming the idol earlier. You know, people make gods in their image. Do you know what God did? God made us in, what, in whose image? In his image. We are the image bearers of God. Idolatry gets the whole thing the wrong way around. We are made in his image. We don't make gods after our own. But it goes even further. People call on gods to save them in verse 18, but God says, I've already redeemed you. You don't need to run after the salvation of any other God, Marduk included, because I am the one who has redeemed you and saved you without you even asking. And though people fill idols with their glory, with the glory of human shape, Israel is formed for God's glory. And as you get dripping all through this, just the warmth of it, the tenderness of it, this God isn't made of wood and, and metal. He has a beating heart. He's a warm voice. He calls us his. He calls us his own. He says he will not forget us in the turmoil of life, in the horror of exile. This is your God, friend. You don't need anything else. And as he speaks of redemption, God speaks of this sweeping aside of offenses in verse 22. I love it. I've swept away your offenses like a cloud, like the mist off a morning cup of tea. Your sins like the morning mist that just disappears when the sun comes. See, one of the problems with our idols is that we change the game of salvation. I want to be saved from my own boredom. I want to be saved from my unhappiness. I want to be saved from my, my insignificance. I want to be saved from my lack of of social connection. God said, you don't need to be saved from any of those things. You need to be saved from your sins. You need to be redeemed from, out from under your worship of false things. The redemption 
I bring and have brought in the person of Jesus Christ, purchasing you with my blood, his blood, is the redemption you need. And he summons to Israel and to the heavens and to the, did you notice the trees of the forest that were made for idols by the idolaters? Who are they singing to? They're singing to the God of Jacob. Because they're not gods, he is. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and he displays his glory in Israel. Here is a promise from God that he will redeem his people. And then it gets vast. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by himself, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. Of their ruins, I will restore them. God promises to bring his people home, to forgive their sins and to restore them to what they were. Here is our God who actively redeems us. And the word to you, friend, this evening is this, return to me, for I have redeemed you. Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you've been held by something for way too long, way too long. And God wants to say to you this evening, I've already brought you back. I've already swept it away. The sun's already got rid of the mist. Set down your piece of wood and come back to me. Because the final thing we see in our text that God emphatically declares that we are to remember, friends, that our God has no rivals. There is no idol. There is no Marduk. There is nothing compared to him. The really controversial part of the redemption plan that God describes here is when he talks about the king Cyrus. He starts saying this in verse 28. Cyrus is the the rising king of Persia who will sweep across the Babylonian world and conquer everything. And to Mesopotamian eyes, it probably is Marduk who sets Cyrus in charge. Marduk is in charge of that city. Marduk is in charge of all of that. But what does God say? God says, who I say, who says of Cyrus, he is what? My shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him. God says, hey, Marduk is not in charge here. I am. Notice how Cyrus says exactly the same things that God says in verse 26. Cyrus is God's mouthpiece in verse 28. And look at the extraordinary words used to describe him. He is my shepherd. Who who is the leader who is a shepherd of God's people? It is the great King David, God's Messiah King. And then even more controversially, the Lord says to his anointed, to his Messiah, to his Christ, to Cyrus, this idolater, violent, pagan king, God says, here's my Christ. Here is my chosen one. Here is the one who will fulfill my purposes. He has not been raised up by Marduk. He has been raised up by me. I am in charge here. I am in complete control. Now, all of this is completely insane. For God to use a foreign, violent king to call him the heir of King David almost is just so offensive 
and so beyond anything that you expect God to do. And that is exactly the point. Because how is it that you know in, in your bones that the God you worship is the real God, that there isn't anyone else, that he is the real deal and you can let go of the other things that are alluring you? How do you know something's gone? Well, surely he has to move in ways that, human create, that are just beyond human creativity. Surely he has to move in ways that are just beyond human power. Surely he has to move in ways that are so unexpected that they leave us in shock and in awe. That is exactly what the coming of Cyrus would have been like. This king who he says, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, verse 4, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you, Cyrus, by name, and bestow on you a title of honor. Though you don't acknowledge me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. You see, in using a foreign king to bring his people home, and that's what, that's what happened. The, the Cyrus cylinder in the British Museum speaks of Cyrus sending peoples home and rebuilding their temples. This isn't Israel in particular mentioned on the cylinder, but we know from other places they received similar messages. Cyrus was someone who regathered people into their homes. God used Cyrus in history to bring his people back to their promised land. And he did it to show that Marduk is nothing. To show that he can even turn the most violent king into the chosen one of his purposes. To show, as he says himself, that he forms the light and creates the darkness and brings prosperity and creates disaster and that he does all these things. And there is no other. And friends, don't we just see this with even more clarity? us who know the Lord Jesus. The God who used the violent king Cyrus used the violent hands of Romans to crucify the Lord's anointed in the most bizarre act that was totally beyond human creativity, totally beyond human power, totally beyond human expectation, that the redemption of God's people would happen on a bloody cross. It's in Jesus that God demonstrates that there is no one beside him. He is the only one who acts in history in such a way. And he is the one who makes all of our idols just look pathetic and small and weak and nothing. So friend, do not hand his glory to that little thing that is tickling your heart. He has already redeemed you. Return to him. Let's pray. Father, we just ask this evening that by your spirit, you would prod us with the things we are putting stock in, with the things we trust too much, with the things we love too much with the things our culture has taught us to trust. And Father, there are people in the building today who just feel held by something. Lord, I pray by your Spirit now that they will return to you. 
and receive the redemption in Jesus Christ. Fill our hearts, Father, with the glory of his cross and his love. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.